Listener Production. Hello, Tom Tilly with you for the briefing. In this episode, how did Australia become the pokies capital of the world? There's been a bruising political fight in Tasmania and more recently New South Wales where very measured laws designed to help gambling addicts have encountered extremely strong fight back from the pokies lobby. Some people have compared it to guns in America. We know restricting access would save lives, but somehow change is really politically fraught. I find it crazy now that there are poker machines on virtually every street corner in Australia, but particularly in New South Wales. Um, But when I was younger, that didn't seem absurd Mm. to me. I kind of took it as fact when I was growing up. Yeah, we're going to go right back in time in this episode and find out how Australia became the pokies capital of the world and why it's so hard to make change. First, here are today's headlines for which I'm joined by Antoinette Latouf. It is Wednesday the 22nd of February. Russian President Vladimir Putin has blamed the West for starting the war in Ukraine in a speech overnight that comes a day before the war's one-year anniversary. The Western elite doesn't conceal their goal is to inflict a strategic defeat in Russia. What does it mean for us? It means to finish us forever. It was a two-hour-long State of the Union address, and he announced Russia is pausing the final nuclear arms control treaty between Russia and America, but also said they would not be the ones to start using nuclear weapons first. Uh, Ukraine has said Putin's speech shows Russia has arrived at a dead end, and the US has called it an absurdity. Yeah, it was a rambling speech. It wasn't very impressive, and it wasn't really that threatening. He kept trying to frame the war as a war on Russia itself, which is not true, as the US has said in response, because if Russia packed up and left Ukraine, this would be the end of it. And he also made this bizarre allegation that pedophilia is completely normalised in the West. I know there was a lot of self-blame, but like escalation has almost become President Putin's watchword. So like there was mention of escalation, but like if you start first. And obviously he warned the West of a, of a global confrontation, but said that we won't go first. And I think it, you know, we have to remember that Russia has the largest stockpile of nuclear weapons in the world. I don't think it was all that threatening, um, but I certainly wouldn't be comfortable as a leader of a, of a Western nation hearing some of, some of the language in that speech. And some good news out of the Turkey-Syria crisis. The baby who was born under a collapsed building in Syria, still connected to her dead mother by her umbilical cord, has been adopted by her aunt and uncle. So this was a huge story just hours after the earthquake, this miraculous rescue of this baby still attached to her mum. Thousands of people are offered to adopt her, but the family have stepped in and she's been named after her late mother, Afra. Um, Meanwhile, six people have died after yesterday's 6.3 magnitude aftershock, and those aftershocks are likely to continue for the next six months. And the latest opinion poll shows the shine has come off Anthony Albanese a bit. His performance rating is down from 35 to 25 percentage points after four weeks of dispute over election promises and the cost of living. 
Voters have cut Labor's primary vote from 42 to 40% and increased the coalition's primary vote from 29 to 31%, according to the Resolve Political Monitor. And Dutton's still on the nose, though. His net performance rating is largely unchanged at minus 16 percentage points. Uh, Tom, does any of this come as a surprise to you? Oh, look, all parties, they come into government, they go through a bit of a honeymoon period and then the shine comes off as they start to get down to business and, you know, not everything's easy. Some of these are bruising arguments that lose your credibility. But I think to only be coming off two percentage points on their primary vote after they've they've actually increased that primary vote substantially since the election. So I still think they're in a very strong position. Yes. And I think, to be honest, most people kind of switch off over summer. They switch off politics. So Mm. people are thinking about things ahead and probably thinking about the difficult economic and political Mm. year ahead. Heading into the budget in May, we're going to start to really hone in on those economic issues. And that's where the real test for the government will be. And Australia's joined more than 30 other countries calling for Russian and Belarusian athletes to be barred from the Paris Olympics next year. So under the current uh, International Olympic Committee's neutrality model, athletes from those two countries can compete, but not under their national flag. So a bit like the Australian Open, where you might have seen some Russian and Belarusian players playing under a white neutral flag. But the statement from the 30 countries plus Australia argues the Olympics is different to something like the tennis. The statement says, we have strong concerns on how feasible it is for Russian and Belarusian Olympic athletes to compete as neutrals when they are directly funded and supported by their states. The strong links and affiliations between Russian athletes and the Russian military are also of clear concern. But the IOC is saying a full boycott would violate the Olympic Charter. It's It's a tricky one, isn't it? Oh, look, Tom, like boycotts are not new. I think the first one was um, all the way back in 1906. And look, probably the most impactful of the boycotts was the um, South African opponents of the apartheid regimes. In terms of their impacts with this one, like, do I think Putin will be like, oh, no, I really want our swimmers to compete on the world stage? Um, uh, no, but I think what it does do, it gets everyone talking and thinking again about the ongoing war and all the casualties because it's kind of popped out of the news cycle for a little while and out of people's consciousness. Uh, I don't know. We've just had the State of the Union from Putin. I think people are still talking about it. The question is, do you ban them completely or not? Uh, does the neutrality model work? It's really close to home, you know, to have the Olympics in Paris with a war going on that was started by Russia under a false pretense. So you want to make a strong statement And the neutrality model, I don't think it really does make a statement. So if you really want to send the message that what Russia's doing is wrong and the rest of the world won't accept it, you have to completely ban them. But I can't see them doing that. So I think this tension is going to live on. The director of the Blues Fest Music Festival has defended his decision booking the band Sticky Fingers. Uh, Peter Noble issued a statement saying Sticky Fingers vocalist Dylan Frost deserves an opportunity and an attempt to victimise this man and his band in the circumstances is cruel and unforgiving. So Noble's statement comes a day after Melbourne band King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard withdrew from the Byron Bay Festival, saying the festival's decision to book Sticky Fingers doesn't align with their values. So this goes back to uh, five-year-old allegations of threatening and abusive behaviour by Dylan Frost towards Indigenous artist Thelma Plum. Dylan Frost has apologised for the incident um, and has struggled with alcohol addiction and mental health issues and been in rehab. 
Noble says forgiveness is critical to helping people with mental health challenges continue functioning in society, and the Blues Fest stands by its lineup and hopes the public will understand. Tom? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I think Peter Noble's done the right thing here. This is about forgiveness and moving forward, not pegging someone to their mistakes for eternity. Um, and I think it's it's really a failed attempt at cancellation. Um, and it's good to see a curator of Peter Noble's stature standing up to the outrage rather than caving into it. Look, there, there were a few other incidents, you know, one of alleged racial slurs, another confronting a trans woman in a Sydney pub. These are allegations that have been denied. Um, but it's a tricky tightrope to walk, um, especially when it involves like vulnerable communities, like, you know, like Indigenous women or like trans people from the trans community. Um, look, I respect the bands who are pulling out um, because they decide, they object. That's absolutely their prerogative. But when it comes to people who are, you know, so-called cancelled or need to atone for their sins or their errors, I think the big question is, and something that, like, it can't really be resolved, is, like, how long? How long do they mm. need to face consequences? Who's the judge? Mm. Is, it, is it some kind of social media judge, people on social media. And I think that's the biggest problem uh, or my biggest critique with people who get um, called out. And I believe in accountability, but it's just um, it's just one of those things that nobody can agree on for how long, how many years um, should we hold someone accountable for something they did five years ago? Yeah, well, I think five years is way too long. And I think, you know, you're asking who the judge is. Well, often it's the, the curators of events or, you know, the editors of media publications who actually end up having to make these decisions. So Peter Noble's been put under a bit of pressure here and this is, this is the statement he's made that, that five years is definitely long enough. So yeah, very, very interesting situation there. Um, be interesting to see how, how it all goes down when the festival happens and good to see that festival doing well because they were really struggling with the, the various last minute cancellations during COVID. So people will be you know, happy to see that festival back at its best. We'll catch you again soon, Antoinette. Um, it's time to go deep on the pokey story. So we are winning an embarrassing race in Australia. We have the most pokies per person in the world, apart from some small island nations and gambling destinations. We also have the highest gambling losses per capita in the world. And our losses from pokies are four times higher than racing and 10 times higher than sports betting. So you would think that bringing in laws to wind back our addiction to pokies a tiny bit would make sense. But no, change in this area has been a nightmare. Between 2010 and 2013 in federal politics, there was a lot going on in this space because the independent Tassie MP, Andrew Wilkie, tried to get the Gillard government to bring in self-imposed pre-commitment levels on how much a person could gamble, but those reforms failed because of a tough campaign by the powerful clubs lobby. And in New South Wales, which has half of Australia's pokies, so it's kind of the capital of the capital, the state government, just a month out from an election, is promising to bring in cashless gaming, which will allow more control over who gambles and how much, but it does stop short of setting strict limits on how much an individual can gamble. Now, even this has been so controversial that the Labor government in New South Wales won't back it. And the head of clubs New South Wales recently had to resign after making a religious slur against the New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet. 
He said his Catholic gut was the reason he was bringing in these reforms. And we've even speculated here on The Briefing whether the revelations about the New South Wales Premier's 21st birthday Nazi costume were unearthed as part of this fight over pokies. It's pretty hard to make change in this space. So let's find out how it came to this. How and why did Australia become the pokies capital of the world and why is it so hard to lose that crown? Drew Rook is a journalist who's written a book on pokies in Australia called One Last Spin. Drew, thanks for joining us on The Briefing. Thank you for having me. So the first modern pokey, as we know it, was invented by a German guy who moved to San Francisco. His name was Charles August Fay, and this was 1899. How long did it take for poker machines to come from America to Australia? Not very long, and I should be clear that the poker machine that Charles August Fay invented was very, very different to those that we're now Mm. familiar with. It was much smaller, it was much slower, and much less intense. It sat on bar tops, basically. Yeah, it didn't take very long at all. Within, you know, a couple of years, really, it had migrated across the Pacific and had found its way into Sydney's bars and pubs and and clubs. But there was ambiguity around its legality and the government basically tolerated them in clubs. And so we had this situation where the pubs and bars were getting increasingly annoyed that clubs were allowed to operate these machines. So what's happening on the industry side? Because we have the second biggest pokey machine company in the world, Aristocrat, which starts in Australia in around the 1950s. So what is the impact of that? How much influence has Aristocrat had in making Australia the pokies capital of the world? Aristocrat developed what we now know as poker machines. It developed the really high intensity, the really fast and the really immersive poker machine that we now see in pubs and clubs. They really pioneered that multi-game machine, which is much, much more effective at earning money or put another way, extracting money from the people who play it. Or put another way, addicting players. Yes, and everything about the machine that Aristocrat developed and uh, the machines that it continues to develop is geared towards keeping people playing for as long as possible and industry insiders aren't secretive about that when you speak to them one-on-one at an industry conference as Mm. I did in the course of writing my book. But there is an uh, extraordinary amount of programming and trial and error that goes into getting kind of the perfect equation that will deliver the right number of rewards to ensure people are excited and winning just enough money over Mm. the course of a long period of time that they won't get frustrated and walk away. Okay, so if you were to to summarise the main reasons why Australia and in particular New South Wales has become the pokies capital of the world, would it be the power of the club's lobby in New South Wales and Len Ainsworth, the founder of Aristocrat? That is how I would summarise it, yeah. Wow. I find it crazy now that there are poker machines on virtually every street corner in Australia, but particularly in New South Wales. Um, But when I was younger, 
that didn't seem absurd mm. to me. I kind of took it as fact when I was growing up. And Well, you grew up. Yeah. So if Australia is the pokies capital of the world, New South Wales has the most pokies in Australia. So New South Wales is really the pokies capital, the highest pokie numbers per capita. But Western Sydney in particular, where you grew up, is, is the real concentration capital of the world. It is. The reason for that is quite insidious and that is that the poker machine industry has targeted an area of Sydney which has a lot of social disadvantage and not a lot of options for gathering and entertainment. There's a huge amount of kind of social stress in communities there and those vulnerabilities have been exploited by the gambling lobby. They have saturated that area of the city with poker machines. So the reason we're talking about this is the really tough fight the New South Wales Premier has had to actually bring in reforms around poker machine use. So he finally announced it just a few weeks ago after some really intense lobbying and some big controversies around clubs in South Wales, including the boss having to resign for making a religious slur about Dom Perrottet's religious motivations for this legislation, which obviously went down very badly. But the reforms they're introducing are so modest. They're talking about going cashless in five years. Everything's going to be cashless in five years, so it's not a major revolution. They're not even bringing in set gambling limits, and the gambling limits they have discussed have been around 1000 or $1,500 a day, but they're not even part of the reforms. So it kind of blows my mind that such modest reforms would bring so much opposition to the point where even New South Wales Labor haven't even backed them. And then you look back at what's happened at a federal level and Andrew Wilkie, the Tasmanian independent, tried to bring in reforms with the Gillard government just for self-imposed gambling limits on pokey machines. Not imposed from the government, self-imposed limits, and even that blew up and they couldn't do anything. So does it surprise you that still to this day, any reform, however modest still gets a huge amount of pushback? It does surprise me in one way, but in another it doesn't because I think the industry knows that poker machines are losing if they haven't already lost their social license and one reform marks the beginning of the end. What I'm, I think, more surprised about is why the New South Wales government is now deciding to make poker machines almost the number one issue in the state election coming up. So where does it go from here? Obviously, this reform in New South Wales still depends who gets elected (laughs) in a month's time. So actually, all this hope around this being a big turning point for pokies in Australia, a downward turning point, might disappear and we might be back to status quo. Exactly right. And we might have a repeat of 2010 when Andrew Wilkie got an agreement from the Gillard government to implement mandatory pre-commitment at a national level. Hopes of that happening were quickly dashed. So there is a real chance that that same thing might happen because Labor hasn't Mm. really committed to any meaningful reforms. Okay. Aside from what's happening in New South Wales, is there any other meaningful push to change the status quo on pokies and, you know, give us hope that we might lose this mantle of the pokies capital of the world? Yeah, there is. Tasmania is about to implement cashless Mm. gaming. 
With um, $100 a day limits. With $100 a day limits and $500 a week limits, mm. um, which is a meaningful reform that will reduce the amount of harm that these machines cause. And it's worth noting that those reforms are being introduced by a Liberal government in Tasmania mm. and the Liberal Party a couple of years ago fought tooth and nail to stop reforms being introduced at a state level that were implemented or were tried to be implemented mm. by a Labor government there. So even though the reforms in New South Wales could go much further and there could be, for instance, the implementation of a $1 maximum bet as opposed to the current $10 maximum bet, it does signal a major shift in political attitudes towards poker machines and the Victorian government has shown some signs that it will follow what New South Wales is doing and so maybe like dominoes, the states will fall and implement meaningful reforms. That was Drew Rook. You can check out his book, One Last Spin, The Power and the Peril of Pokies. And it will be really interesting to watch how this New South Wales election plays out and whether any of the other states will follow the moves in Tassie and potentially New South Wales. Either way, it's going to take a long time before anything substantial happens and Australia ever loses its pokies crown. Tomorrow on The Briefing, um, the first of a two-part series looking at where Indigenous people are landing on the First Nations' voice to Parliament. Listener.